Are you ready to take your leadership and your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate, evolve, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world. And you can become the next big success story. Now, here's your host, Maureen Metcalf. Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders and their organizations to identify the trends that will most likely disrupt their businesses and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create sustainable business and strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also an adjunct faculty member in universities in the U.S. and Germany. Welcome to Cynthia Cherry, who is the president and CEO of the International Leadership Association. We are broadcasting live from Brussels at the annual leadership conference. Thank you, Maureen for being here with us here in Brussels. I'm so excited about the series of keynote speakers that we are able to present and that will give a timeless message around our topic and theme of leadership in turbulent times. And I'm very pleased with our conference chair, Jord Volkers from Deloitte University, the Dean of Deloitte University and his team who helped us along with the ILA staff to present this global conference in Brussels, Belgium in 2017. She's an ILA board member, executive director of Clear International Development Incorporated, professor of Practice Institute for the Study of International Development at McGill University, and a member of Rwanda's National Science and Technology Council, and also... I'm also a member of the Presidential Advisory Council. Thank you. And so, Eliane and I have done this conversation before, <laughs> and so as we talk about the outcomes, I would like this conversation to range from the idea that in multiple countries, contexts, and environments, how we collaborate and the perspectives required to create success also are a broad range. So Elian, who has worked in multiple countries, contexts, and in collaborations, will offer perspectives and success stories about her work in Africa. Uh, leadership development efforts in these constantly changing yet often traditional settings require attention to nuance, cultural competency, and persistence. She'll explore themes including intercultural decision-making, cross-cultural and cross-sector collaboration, local and global strategies, and resilience. Also, she's a molecular biologist, so in this conversation, I hope we are also able to cover how biology of, of us as humans and leaders impacts how we lead and how we're resilient, and that our consciousness of how we are leading impacts us down to the level of our DNA. So 
we will hopefully talk about all of that in a brief interview. So welcome, Eliane. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. It's a pleasure being here with you. Thank you. So where do you want to start? There's a lot to cover. What, what is most interesting to you at this moment? At this moment, um, I, I just here at the conference, the International Leadership Association's Global Conference in Brussels, um, today I chaired a session on the future of leadership. Okay. And so where we are today is we are living in a context where gene editing exists, so we're able to go into uh, our DNA, our human DNA, and we're able to make changes. We're able, through artificial intelligence, to have a lot of the work that was normally done by uh, workforces, human workforces, are going to become automated. So there's going to be a lot of changes in the workforce in the world. And in the, the knowledge worker workforce. Absolutely. Before it was just people who got automated, so less skilled. Yes. Now it's going to be in the more skilled and people with power. Yes. And that, I think that's an important differentiation as people get displaced and they're powerful, their voices will be heard differently. So what's very interesting about this space we're in is there's going to be more and more replacement of human work by algorithms. Mm -hmm. and, and so this is work that can be done by legal experts at lower levels. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the surgeries are going to be automated and robotic diagnosis. diagnosis, surgery. In terms of, of banking, uh, blockchain, blockchain is going to yeah. revolutionize how we move money around the world, mm -hmm. how we uh, create transparent ledgers that allow us to, to have our transactions um, be transparent and simultaneously be held in different ledgers on the, the internet. So there's a lot of things that are going to be happening that are going to change how we do business in the world, what type of work people do. And as these areas of technology, which is really the fourth industrial revolution, take more and more space, it's also how is that going to change the dynamics between emerging countries in the world, powerful countries, and, and so how do we prepare the workforce of the planet for these changes? So in 2050, between now and 2050, 50% of the births in the world are going to happen in Africa. Right now, Africa has about a billion people. And by 2050, that's going to reach around 2.6 billion. So how do we prepare for that workforce? How do we ensure that people will have work or quality of life where they are, that we're going to be limiting forced migrations related to poverty? And how do we... Food accessibility, food, food security, Food accessibility. Water. How do we ensure that people have access to food, to water, to energy, to housing? And how do we do that in sustainable ways? How do we harness the, the renewable technologies that we have today, fuel cells, solar, all sorts of new technologies that will allow us to have life cycles of uh, the, the chemicals that we use or how we use energy. How do we allow cradle-to-cradle -cradle manufacturing? So ensuring that instead of going to get more natural resources out of the earth, we use the ones we have more effectively and reuse them in and the systems. Reuse them, yeah. 
And uh, so this idea of the circular economy, so mm -hmm. there is no waste. So what we do, we use and then we repurpose and we bring back into the economy. And how do we ensure that what we use from our biodiversity, from the natural world, that we really have cycles where there is a minimum of waste or no waste at all. And we go from food production to production of organic fertilizers and we allow cycles that are producing more food for the planet, but also higher quality food, less use of chemicals and pesticides. So how do we optimize the system? If we look at uh, the second exporter of food in the world is Holland. And Holland is, is one of the smallest countries in the world. It has about well, 1.2 thousand people per square kilometer. So it's a very densely populated country. And yet they're still growing that much food yes, for and export. And they're doing sustainably. They're using uh, uh, solar powered uh, greenhouses. And they're also looking at uh, energy from uh, all sorts of other renewable sources of energy. So waste energy production, getting energy from heat sources uh, below ground. So there's, there's a lot oh, of geothermal. ways. Yeah. yeah, geothermal energy. And so how do we, in the 21st century, have economies that will have a neutral carbon footprint or a positive carbon footprint? So the way we innovate, the way we consciously build and grow businesses in the 21st century is really critical to how humanity is going to survive in this century. And it's going to be really important in terms of the power dynamics, access to water around the world, mm -hmm. access to land around the world, and how we consciously lead for peace. I love that last because we talk about just basic survival, yes. the Maslow mm -hmm. food yes. stuff. And yet here at the ILA conference, there's a big focus on leading for peace. Yes. And that's a conversation that I don't hear much in my business community environment. We all talk about politics, mm -hmm. but there hasn't yet in the, in the circles I've traveled. And mm -hmm. so I'm sure there are other people talking more about this, mm -hmm. but a lot less about what practices do we take on, each of us, yes. such that we're creating a world in which our children aren't shipped off to war. Yes, and so it's really about how do we consciously work, live, in families, in organizations, in communities where we are having a purpose-driven mission, where we have respect for life, for the planet, for humanity, for others, mm -hmm. and we are doing that with the most compassion possible. So one of the issues in that we've seen around the world in the last 12 months, there's been amazing, really powerful climate incidents there's been flooding all over the world. We've had hurricanes. It's, it's been, it's been a, a very uh, traumatic year in terms of uh, climate incidents. And what we're realizing is there is nothing we can do to protect ourselves unless we're protecting each other globally. So that gets to the, the conversation about interconnectedness. Yes. That it's so easy for each of us to be so focused on our, our own personal lives. I go to work, that's stressful. I take care of my, if I have children and a spouse, I'm doing all of the things associated with 
providing for their health and safety and education and entertainment that they're going to play sports and, and just providing a healthy environment. And for most people, there's not much left. So the, the conversations, again, are often not other than to point out that there was a earthquake in Mexico and I hope they're okay and sometimes we send money. There isn't a lot of sense of the interconnectedness that I am making decisions with the quote other in mind when mm -hmm. other is on the other side of the planet. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting about that is every day we make we make economic choices. We choose what we're going to buy, which companies we're going to buy from, uh -huh. and that has consequences locally and globally. Uh -huh. And so if we all as consumers can use to be conscious buyers, conscious consumers, uh -huh. we can promote economies where we're really helping companies that are having the greatest benefit locally and globally uh -huh. be the leaders economically that are going to help uh -huh. us globally advance the interconnectedness in the most positive way. And in some cases that's as simple as going to fair trade stores. Yes. Or, or buying a fair trade product in mm -hmm. a big box store. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it can be it can be simple as that. Some countries and now there are there are different apps that are available that actually allow you to look at the, the footprint of the companies you buy from, to look at how sustainable they are, mm -hmm. to look at how much social good they're involved in. So it's it's interesting the amount of information now available in terms of for consumers, in terms of the decisions we make. And and you know, we may think this doesn't matter, but it matters greatly. When we think about a, a couple of years ago when the Ebola crisis happened. Yes. And so, okay, one, and there's this idea, oh, this is in Africa. And then there were a couple of cases that were detected in, in Spain and then the US. So the reality is the quality of health in Liberia, in Sudan, anywhere in the world where an epidemic can start because of the level of migrations that are happening, anything can get anywhere else. And it does. Yes. And so it should matter to each of us what is the quality of health care that everybody else is receiving on the planet because the level of migrations are creating these massive effects that can affect us everywhere. The economic consequences of the Ebola crisis were massive in terms of the African continent as a whole, even though the Ebola virus was actually only present in, in uh, Liberia and Sierra Leone. And it was able to be stopped in terms of spreading to uh -huh. other countries. But the fear of what it represented, uh, a lot of people who were traveling to other areas in Africa were scared to go. You know, I have a friend who went from Ohio over to, to work because his background was international health. Mm -hmm. And when he came back, there were families who would not let his children go to school. So there was a massive fear mm -hmm. and pressure on him mm -hmm. to say, don't go and do good mm -hmm. because we're afraid you're going to infect us. Yes, yes. Not just figuratively, but yes. literally, we could die yes. because you want to go do that. Mm -hmm. And so the reality is the fears people have, mm -hmm. whether they're, they're um, real fears or they're perceived fears, mm -hmm. are things we need to deal with. And the reality that people's quality of lives, wherever they are in the world, if we're able to ensure that every child on the planet ha 
has access to health care. Mm -hmm. If we can ensure that each country in the world has a health system that doesn't allow epidemics to spread mm -hmm. and can be contained and dealt with as fast as possible, mm -hmm. then those types of worries are things we won't have to deal with. And so it's important that we don't get into a situation where the people who want to be of service to the planet are ostracized because they're going to help. And that was exactly the situation. Yes. Yes. And it was a family decision because it was mm -hmm. a, a spouse with two children mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. there were concerns about how long would he gone, be gone, would he be infected? Yes. Would he die? Yes. And those yes. are big decisions they're, to take. They're huge decisions and I think it's important that we don't have a few people on the planet take on that suffering. Mm -hmm. If we all uh, collectively are able to say, how do we each contribute in the best way we can? Mm -hmm. Then there are a lot of ways we can work together to ensure that fears related to the spreads of disease like that are minimized. Then we can ensure that the people locally uh, can organize so that they're able to contain diseases, that mm -hmm. they have the proper equipment to prevent the spread. and so. How do we organize ourselves so that communities can help themselves? You know, the thing that strikes me is, is the, I want to say the polarity of we've got a global community and now disease travels around the world. Yes. And so is there a global decision making and yet what happens in a small community in Sudan or Columbus, Ohio or Arasaba, mm -hmm. they want to make decisions for themselves as well, yes. and some organization on high shouldn't dictate, and yet it seems like we need a orientation toward both, mm -hmm. that, that we as a global community have some sort of guidelines, and that local areas implement them in a way that is practical. Mm -hmm. So one of the th simple things is how are we designing cities? Okay. to maximize health. Okay. And so with the, um, the, the urbanization growing in emerging economies, mm -hmm. if we have people organized in urban areas where they have access to clean water, where they have access to uh, toilets that don't allow contamination of sanitation systems, with water drinking systems, then we're creating situations where health in the long term is possible. Mm -hmm. But when we have situations where people are living in shanty towns where they don't have access to clean water, we're creating situations where uh, the possibilities of epidemics grows. And so that decision of how we are organizing cities around the world is really critical. That infrastructure costs money. Infrastructure costs money, and at the same time, the opportunity cost is if we don't put those infrastructures in place, mm -hmm. the costs related to epidemics can be beyond anything we can think of. So the opportunity cost isn't, oh, let's do nothing and hope there's not going to be an epidemic. It's, let's invest in what is needed, let's create jobs locally that are sustainable, that promote a sustainable, healthy cities, that allow people to thrive in their communities, and that ensure that nobody has to be forced into migrating mm -hmm. because they have no choice. 
Well, especially as you talk about the dramatic increase in population on the African continent in some areas, I presume, that are not yet highly developed. And so basic sewer structures and physical infrastructure is not yet present to support that population growth. Now, maybe it shouldn't be because it hasn't grown, but that investment, and then again, we get into the question of global community and where does the money come from? Do, do we as a global family help one another? If you were my sister and your car broke down, of course I would help you. And yet, if I don't have enough food on the table, I'm going to struggle, struggle to help you. So I, again, it's a mm -hmm. polarity of how yes. do we define other mm -hmm. and how do we define who's in our tribe? How yes. do we expand the definition of my people? Yes. Well, one of the exciting things about the 21st century and the interconnectedness we have mm -hmm. is that there is a growth of impact investment, of social responsible mm -hmm. investments, of conscious capitalism. And so there are networks, there are financial instruments today that can help us rethink how we invest, why we invest, and the types of return we get on those investments so that we are helping a healthier world for our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And what is very exciting to me about this is if, if we look at Africa, 60% of the arable land on the planet that isn't being used for agriculture is in Africa. So if we were able to have sustainable uh, ecological food production in Africa, looking with support of the types of technology mm -hmm. being used in Holland, for example, right now, Wageningen yeah. University, which is a, a very important agriculture university in Holland, is actually helping all sorts of research institutes around the world hmm. promote sustainable, productive agriculture. So if we can increase partnerships for good, around the world, we can have productive economies that are creating jobs for people, that are bringing dignity to communities, and at the same time, we can design the rural and urban areas of the future to be areas where people are going to live and thrive. But there is a level of consciousness to achieve this that we need to attain that isn't there yet at scale. So let me play back what I'm hearing. So we can point to some of the trends. Yes. Um, not with 100% accuracy, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. high, at least trend-wise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we know how jobs will flow. We know where people will be born. And we know the deficit between what's, what currently exists and what will be required. Yes. So number of houses, volume of food. Mm -hmm. And so that tells us that if we planned this world, that, that there would be a way to, to look forward, identify the gap, and potentially fill the gap yes. as a global community yes. through, think, in some cases, things that already exist. So conscious leadership, conscious investment, solid leadership, yes. but the definition of leadership has to change, the mindset has to change, the definition of in and out groups and who do I care about and is it me first or us first and and again I, I keep seeing the polarities that if I'm on a plane of course I have to put my mask on first because passing out isn't going to help anybody and yet how long do I sit there and breathe before I reach out and help my companions 
one of the things I think I'm hearing is the, the awareness and concern for everyone has to expand dramatically because ignoring something that's happening over there, wherever there is, to yes. whoever them is, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. will eventually come to my front yard mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. impact me. Yes, yes. If we look at the recent Peace Nobel Prize, that was given to a group that was uh, informing and fighting nuclear warfare. One of the realities is there is enough nuclear power in the world to, to, to blow our planet. Oh, gosh, yeah. And the reality is, how do we monitor the balance of power in the world? Mm -hmm. And how do we do that in a way that ensures that we will continue to exist? And so the importance of how are we looking at technology and technology for good? We're, we're really at a place in time where we have access to phenomenal sustainable technologies that can really help us do great things. Mm -hmm. And so what are the conscious choices we're making to allow these technologies to help all of humanity thrive? Rather than what am I doing to make my company more profitable. Yes. And I want to say, and we've heard great examples in the last few days, there are ways to make my company profitable and concurrently have a bigger purpose and align those in a way that creates both global sustainability and profitability. It's yes. not an either or. Absolutely. It just means a shift in mindset. Absolutely. And it's really, we have to get beyond the zero-sum game to really have growth mindsets be the foundation of how we educate children around the world. We have to have ethical leadership that ensures that we have enabling policies to support good at the health, at the food, at the education. How do we ensure the safety of all? And with ethical leadership, with enabling policies, with caring financial systems, we can be able to create systems that really allow thriving and sustainability to be hand-in-hand uh, -hand as we move forward in the 21st century. That is a handful. <laughs> so with that, we're going to take a break. You'll be back with Eliane and Maureen talking about what is emerging in our future and what does the leadership need to evolve or emerge into to make that future one that we will want our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to live in. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Metcalf & Associates is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and business. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, Metcalf & Associates has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the perpetual capacity to identify and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. 
Metcalf & Associates offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com today. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. the market's up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. So welcome back. We've been talking about the changes that are happening in our world between now and 2050 and beyond and the kinds of leadership required to thrive in that emerging environment so let's talk about what are some of the characteristics and traits that you think are foundational so one of the things that i find especially when i talk to young people is they're they they tell me there's so much suffering in the world what can i do and, and one of the issues that I see today is that there's a lot of empathy, but empathy with paralysis. And so what happens is I can feel for your suffering, for my suffering, for somebody else's suffering, but I feel there's nothing I can do about it. And so one of the things that is really essential in this 21st century is to grow our level of compassion. So the idea that I can hold suffering, but I can hold that suffering in a space of compassion that is much larger than the suffering. So you've used the word empathy and compassion, and those are different. Yes. So can you explain to our listeners what's the distinction and... How do they play out? Okay, so Matthew Ricard, who's a uh, French um, Buddhist monk who's also a molecular geneticist, has a great book called On Altruism. And one of the things he talks about is this idea that we get fatigue, empathy fatigue. And we live in times where we see more and more burnout. 
in work environments. And what happens around that is that people see a lot of things, feel a lot of the pain, but feel that there is, they feel powerless to do anything about it in the systems they're in. And that's pervasive in our workplace, absolutely. but also as we're watching politics. Amazing, absolutely. And so one of the things around that, and, and there's more and more research in the neurobiology of compassion that is showing that what actually happens in our body when we are holding solely empathy is that our energy is drained. But when we're able to hold suffering in a space of loving kindness, when we're able to be in a space of non-judgment and really bless what we're thinking of, uh, think of, send messages of love, mm -hmm. hold a space of grace, we're able to recharge our bodies. And boy, is that hard to do. Well, what's interesting is now that there's these amazing studies looking at uh, monks that have been meditating over mm -hmm. decades. And there's data showing that their chromosomes, so their DNA, they actually have longer telomeres. And telomeres are the ends of the chromosomes, so our mm -hmm. DNA material. And so what happens is the more stress we live, mm -hmm. the shorter our chromosomes get over time. And our brain is also impacted, right? Absolutely. So one of the things that happens, for example, children who, who receive attention and who are read books will actually have more neural networks. So they will have a greater capacity to learn compared to children's, children who don't get talked to, who don't get read to. So there are so many ways we can promote health, we can promote learning, we can promote an openness to creativity, to adaptability, to agility, and those are all necessary skill sets in the 21st century. Okay, also as an adult, yes. if I meditate, so, so yes. I may have missed the boat because my parents didn't read to me, or uh, for, actually I was quite fortunate, so I, they did read to me, and I, uh, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm here now, yes. and I have the opportunity to change my physiology and Absolutely. my brain. Absolutely. Meditating. So, so one of the things we're, we're seeing more and more and, and is realizing that we have plasticity. So our bodies, our minds, uh, our um, neurons, that we have this capacity to rejuvenate our system. And I want to say not only rejuvenate, but strengthen. Absolutely. Build that frontal cortex. Yes. Where, where cognition happens, complex thinking happens. Absolutely. And we do it not necessarily by thinking more, but by meditating. By meditating, by holding a space of compassion, by living in a space of non-judgment. And it, it affects our biology, it affects the biology of the people we work with, it mm -hmm. affects the community we live in, it affects our longevity, it affects uh, the probability of, of getting disease or not. So, so there are amazing links we're seeing. We're seeing, for example, um, in terms of our gastrointestinal systems, we have more bacteria in our bodies, cell, bacterial mm -hmm. cells, than mm -hmm. human cells. So there's an area of research that looks at the microbiome. So the microbiome looks at what is the flora, the microbial flora in our bodies. And if we're stressed, we have different types of microbes in our body. If we have cancer, we have different types of microbes in our bodies. If we have diabetes, we have different types of microbes in our body. So how we create a 
space of health in our body, how we promote well-being in our body, will determine the quality of the microbiome we have. And the microbiome we have is connected to our neural system. Okay. And so that will determine the quality of our thinking, of our capacity for compassion, of, of the, our decision-making process. And so what we know today that may have seemed Pollyannish 50 years ago mm -hmm. is that growing your level of compassion, of, of loving in this world, mm -hmm. actually improves your health. I think there are a lot of people who don't yet know that message. You know, a traditional corporate culture where we still reward the superhero. I work harder, I work hard at work, then I go drink with my buds, and I may go home and take care of an ailing parent. There's no time for me. And I, I am proud of the fact that I can drink more and work more and behave like a superhero, and yet at the same time I am physiologically damaging myself. So one of the realities is when we are physiologically damaging ourselves, we become more reactive. It can take more time for certain people. Mm -hmm. It can be internalized and turn into disease. It can be externalized and turn into violence, toxic leadership, abusive leadership. But the manifestations will come out and they have effects. They have effects on ourselves, on our families, on our communities. And so this is why it is so critical today to really have a mindset that promotes well-being, that promotes interconnectedness, that is of service to a greater good. Because all of that is good for our own physiology, but is also really critical to navigating the level of change and turbulence we're living in the 21st century. So you just said something that really stands out, so I want to reiterate it and maybe put it in my own words. The idea of service to the greater good yes. as a sense of purpose. So, yes. so actually having a sense of purpose that's bigger than myself is also restorative. It's not that I'm going out there and doing nice stuff for those people. It's that helping others actually physiologically improves my well-being. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is why this is an important message for us to realize because this level of generosity that we can hold for each other will increase the level of good in the world, the level of joy in the world, the level of prosperity, and our capacity for envisioning sustainable systems. So back to the beginning then. So by mindfulness, by consciousness, by whatever words we use, mm -hmm. and I realize that different people will have different reactions to some of these words from consciousness to mindfulness to meditation and mm -hmm. they imagine Presence. walking mm -hmm. around with a tambourine in an airport with a flower and <laughs> something. And we're not talking about that. No. We're talking no. about very deliberate practices yes. that are practical within every spiritual path. So you don't have to leave your church and no. Go, no. go to the airport. No. My former husband, I think, was terrified that someday he would come home and I would be wearing an orange robe <laughs> with my tambourine and flowers headed off to the airport because I meditated. <laughs> and it's not the case. No. I, I never did quit my job and start following some something. What I did do is have a different sense of self yes. and a, a greater capacity to do the work I did and do, and I've been doing this for 20 years, 
And I can say I feel like a very different person. Absolutely. And so let's tie that back, not make it about me, but that by having these practices and doing them as well as we can in busy lives, that then I have a better capacity to do the work I do and be of service to my family and my community and my work. Absolutely. Which is global at this point. What we're realizing, we, we, we live in worlds where we're we have our gadgets, we have our electronics, uh, technologies, workforce. There's so much changing. The level of anxiety will only keep increasing. And as that level of outside anxiety increases, having a level of inner calm becomes even more important. We can call it inner calm, we could call it emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. So that capacity to hold more emotional intelligence allows us to be in systems where there's a lot of emotionality mm -hmm. and be able to look at these systems in a wise, calm way that allows us to be decisive when we need to be decisive, mm -hmm. to be creative when we need to be creative, allows us to work in collaborative uh, leadership spaces in ways where our strengths can combine with other people's strengths and our egos don't get in the way. So it allows us to bring the best of ourselves and at the same time it allows a safety to be vulnerable and authentic so others can say hey you have this strength I have this strength let's bring them together and because you're respecting my vulnerability and I'm respecting yours we are getting an exchange to where we're both feeling that we're winning and so it's how do we promote these spaces because the more turbulence there is in the world the more emotional intelligence we want the more authentic leadership we want the more ethical leadership we want and the more capacity for vision making and collaboration and the more spaces where emergence is needed there's chaos there's insecurity there's uncertainty so we have to be able to moment by moment by moment be able to adapt so we need adaptive leadership we need this capacity because the issues, the challenges, we were facing complex, wicked problems. And so they're not going to be solved through technical solutions. Mm -hmm. We're going to need adaptive solutions to look at them. And so we need stakeholder involvement. We're going to have to involve more people. We're going to have to bring technology, people, and be able to look moment by moment by moment how do we address these issues together. And so again, you're saying a few things here that I want to pull out moment by moment i may plan and and i still think it's a good yes. idea to plan absolutely rather than floundering about mm -hmm. and yet i have to be willing to adjust that plan and not have my ego attached to making changes yes and in fact the the wicked problems require that i as an individual it's not technical. Mm -hmm. I can't just do a thing. Mm -hmm. I have to change my mindset yes. to step back in and do a thing different yes. than was even available to me in the past. Absolutely. And so the reality is we have to deal with people. We have to deal with tasks. So we have to be good at working with people. We have to meet our deadlines. But we have to have, the, to have relationships where we're able to inspire people to accomplish what they need to accomplish so we can accomplish and focus on what we need to accomplish and so we can effectively uh, have our tasks met. And so that balance is needed. I cannot coerce you into doing something. 
the best way is for how do we respectfully work together towards uh, attaining the goals we want. And so when we have systems where leaders inspire others to do great work and create systems where the clarity of responsibilities of roles are there or when systems are, are more uh, emergent, people are able to listen, observe and pay attention so that moment by moment by moment they can help each other figure out things, use their innovation and creativity to find new ways of doing things. And so that balance is really important. So again, I'm going to restate, not that you didn't say it absolutely beautifully and I couldn't do it as effectively, but I hear that I need to change my inner thought process, my mindset, my way of seeing the world needs to continue to evolve and I need a commitment to that or I won't be able to do the things required. Yes. There are a few things in my world that are black and white, but that's a black and white. If I'm not evolving, my insides, my outsides won't meet the tasks at hand. I will be obsolete and doing damage in the process. Absolutely. So any day we, we don't have space for self-reflection mm -hmm. is a day lost in terms of growth. And so that space of self-confidence, self-reflection, self-identity, the more that inner space is strong, the more we're able to handle the turbulence on the outside. And this is why having a growth mindset is so critical today. Because that growth mindset allows us to see any obstacle, any failures as opportunities to grow our skills and not as a failure of who we are. Yeah, I, I missed the mark I set on a task. And often I did as good as one could do, given what we had. Or sometimes I'm tired and I, I just bollocks it up. And I get up and I keep going. Yes. And I do better next time. Absolutely. And that's critical to ethical leadership. Because when I think the only way I can get there is by cheating, by stealing, by doing something that is wrong or, or condemns others, that's because I have a fixed mindset and I don't mm. believe that I have the capacity to do things in a creative way that includes the other. You know, this, that gets to a point that so resonates. And again, it's something we don't talk about. We talk about humility, but I, I work with leaders in D360s and there are some people who underestimate their ability. And that underestimating and lack of self-confidence yes. means that there's a gap between what they can do and what they choose to do because they feel inadequate to meet the task mm -hmm. even though they have the skills. Absolutely. Absolutely, and that's that's a huge problem, especially for women, because women may be absolutely competent, mm -hmm. but their self-confidence will limit the opportunities they're willing to go after. There's a, a, a certain percentage that says that women will apply for jobs that they're 100 or 110% qualified mm -hmm. for, and men will apply for jobs where they're 30% qualified for. <laughs> so what happens is over time, men will stretch themselves more mm -hmm. and grow more, and women, because of that search for safety, won't have that capacity to grow. So one of the things that is really critical for women and girls, and especially Especially as mothers, as sisters, aunts, uh, um, godmothers, is how do we encourage girls to stretch? 
because when we're able to do that, we build our self-confidence. Biologically, if we are wired to keep our children safe, yes. then we, we will be less risky Absolutely. than men who are, who are wired to go out and conquer, and they have to take more risks. So we're overcoming physiology again. Definitely. But with plasticity, we can rewire, right? We can rewire, and this rewiring is really critical. It's really critical, especially with this fourth industrial revolution, where uh, there's going to be needs for more and more technologically trained people. And we want women in these spaces, because we want women to bring their innovation and creativity to these spaces. Because often when women go into technology, they will use technology to be of service to greater good. They just won't use it just to produce more video games. So the importance of having half of the world contribute their intelligence, mm -hmm. their emotional intelligence, their uh, IQs, their capacity for compassion to bringing new solutions to the wicked challenges we have in the 21st century is imperative. We have to do it. I love that. We have to do it and yet we have to, again, in some ways rewire our brains yes. so that we are up to the task. Absolutely. If we think about it, whatever all of the technological tools we have, there's updates. There's constant updates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the so refresh. Refresh. So, so why is it that we think if those tools that are more basic do it, why shouldn't we need to do it? You know, the other population we haven't talked about is those people who are aging. Yes. So back to the, the refresh idea. If you and I are going to live to be 100, yes. then we have more productive work years ahead of us yes. than behind us, which is not what I was taught. You work till you get to retire and enjoy, and I assume that was somewhere around 60. Now that may be somewhere around 80 or 90. And so how do we help folks to continue, assuming people are remaining healthy, which yes. we've already talked about, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how do we take on that growth mindset and assume that that has to be our mindset into our 80s and 90s? I worked with a client recently who said, I'm 55, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And my response was, how many years do you want to work? Because with that attitude, you should be planning your retirement party now. So one of the things that's really clear in terms of the plasticity of our brain and our cells is the more we stretch ourselves, the more we uh, rejuvenate. And so the quality of life we're going to have, if we're going to live longer, will be proportional to the level of effort we put in today. And so one of the things is we have to become lifelong learners. We talk about learning organizations, but mm -hmm. really as individuals, we have to be lifelong learners. I want to caveat that. I absolutely agree. Maybe I'm expanding the definition of learning. So we talked about meditation yes. being one of the, the mechanisms, mm -hmm. reflection and looking at where am I excelling and where am I not. Mm -hmm. There's traditional learning, and then there are the disorienting dilemmas. Mm -hmm. How do I put myself in environments that are terribly uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, it was doing an outward bound trip, yes. where I had to go into caves with bats flying at my head mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and things like that that mm -hmm. are physically really mm -hmm. not within my mm -hmm. lane. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think the learning it's important that we use a, 
and, and I'm not saying that you weren't using that definition, but to be explicit, that learning needs to encompass all of those with some regular diet. Absolutely. But the, the idea for me is how do I create enough discomfort that I am constantly growing? Okay. Enough discomfort. It's not about <laughs> paralyzing discomfort. Which I occasionally do have. And so the, the idea is really, it's this idea of if we want to grow our emotional intelligence, we're going to have to put ourselves in a space of discomfort. Of course. If we want to grow our circles of influence, mm -hmm. we have to be on the edge of where our knowledge, our, our circles of influence, our networks, those, just on the edge of those zones is where creativity, innovation, novel spaces emerge. And if we think about weightlifting as a, just as a, yes, a metaphor, a metaphor. Mm -hmm. if I lift weights and truly build muscle, I'm tearing. Absolutely. It hurts. Yes. When I write a textbook, my brain hurts. Mm -hmm. I can only write for so long that I, for me, the process is write, walk, write, walk. I have to get out of the physical environment yes. into a natural space. And I know I can go back when I start to have ideas again. When I don't feel fuzzy, mm -hmm. it hurts my brain. And this is where compassion comes in again, <laughs> because we're my exercising. <laughs> we're exercising that muscle of emotional intelligence, of mm -hmm. compassion, of, of learning abilities. And so it's we stretch ourselves, and then we rest. We have gratitude. We stretch mm -hmm. ourselves. We rest. We have gratitude. And as we practice this cycle, mm -hmm. we create a virtuous cycle that increases our level of influence, increases our opportunities, increases our capacity to do good with others, increases our networks, increases our capacity for leveraging. And so then we really are slowly growing spaces. We're feeling discomfort, but we're also growing our capacity to love. And so we're able to sustain more tension, we're able to sustain more turbulence, and we're able to navigate more and more difficult systems and are able to have leadership that is inspired, that is transcendental, that really allows us to work at levels we couldn't imagine. And it's that idea is how big a dream can I set for myself and how can I slowly work towards it? We often, we overestimate what we can do in six months or a year, but mm -hmm. we underestimate what we can accomplish over five or ten. I love that. that and that's how my books start, is what is your vision for your contribution to the world? Yes. What's your legacy? And I know for many of us that idea is a bit of a stretch. Mm -hmm. For me it was interesting, a friend of mine, a colleague, died of pancreatic cancer way too young. Mm -hmm. So I was sitting in his funeral in the service, and we talk about putting yourself in that spot, but actually sitting there, listening to people talk about someone I knew so well mm -hmm. and had such high regard for, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I wondered, would anyone show up for mine? Mm -hmm. What would they mm -hmm. say? Would mm -hmm. it be like one of those bad comedy mm -hmm. shows mm -hmm. where they, they had to pay a homeless person to show up? What would the impact, what will it be? It's mm -hmm. not a mm -hmm. hypothetical thing mm -hmm. that at some point this will happen. Mm -hmm. How do I imagine? Mm -hmm. And then what do I do every day? Mm -hmm. And for me, this is personal. I do have a, a vision statement of helping leaders solve the world's biggest problems. Absolutely. And, and I think there's a saying that, you know, people will forget a lot of things, but they will not forget how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. 
and we've talked about physiology, mm -hmm. so we know that there's an effect at the cellular level in terms of our DNA. There's there's a, um, a space called epigenetics or DNA methylation where we know that our environmental stress has an influence on our DNA. And so what we know is how we make ourselves feel, mm -hmm. how we make others feel will be remembered and it will be remembered on a DNA level and it will be remembered on an emotional level. And so our leadership legacy is there at all of these levels and it's our choice to decide what is we want it to be. And you know, as a closing comment, I want to say thank you because for, can uh, I get crying? <laughs> for our listeners, what you don't know is this is the second time we've recorded this interview because I had a technical issue that was completely my fault. And the level of grace that you demonstrated in being willing to give on yet another hour at a conference that's incredibly busy where you're a board member and trying to make things happen is touching. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing for the world, for building greater leadership for good. Thank you, Maureen. As we close, how would people reach you? They can reach me on, on LinkedIn, uh, my profiles on LinkedIn. I have a Twitter account. I have uh, a number of videos on YouTube where I talk about leadership. I have a TEDx talk. I have a number of book chapters on leadership. So, so I'm out there. There's a lot of information out there and I'm continuing to do more work and to share what I learn along the way. So I, I plan to continue to contribute. Thank you. So basically, Google you. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And in your speaker profile, your name is spelled out, so yes. they will know who to Google <laughs> and how to do that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us live in Brussels at the International Leadership Association Conference. In these turbulent times, investing time and energy to refresh and evolve your leadership skills becomes a critical success driver. I challenge each of us to consider the impact effective leadership makes on our lives and on the lives of the organizations we lead and the people that those organizations impact. Imagine what each of us can do as we work together to solve these big problems that impact us, together we can create a world that is more peaceful, more just, and creates more opportunities for everyone to thrive. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then. Drive and thrive and have a great week.